The Water Values Podcast, Session 5. podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to the Water Values Podcast. I'm Dave McGimsey and I'm happy you're joining me today. I'm recording this on the Thursday before the next episode releases. I'll be on spring break next week, so I need to get everything in order. I'm excited as the whole family's heading to Moab, Utah, where we'll tent camp. Hopefully we're lucky enough to get one of those prime BLM spots right on the Colorado River which ironically enough is a big topic in today's show. Before I get into the show, though, I want to extend my thanks to all of you. Thank you so much for listening and for spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast. At just one week into its life, the Water Values Podcast already has over 400 downloads. People from Australia, England, Romania, Liberia, Pakistan, Canada, and the U.S. have visited the website. That's five continents, and the race is on to see whether South America can edge out Antarctica and be the sixth continent to check out thewatervalues.com. Please help me keep this great momentum going by continuing to give me great feedback and by reviewing and rating the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Your ratings have, to date have helped the Water Values podcast get noticed by iTunes and be recognized in the new and noteworthy section of the science category. By adding a review and rating, you can help iTunes to feature the podcast on the main page for new and noteworthy podcasts. Please help me out by providing a rating on iTunes and Stitcher and keep downloading and telling your friends and business contacts about the Water Values podcast. Now, turning to the show, we are fortunate to have had fantastic guests to date on the Water Values podcast, and today is no different. Today, John Ensminger, the new general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, joins us. What a privilege it is for John to be on the Water Value podcast so early in its life. John has tremendous experience on the issues of water conservation, water rate design, infrastructure issues, and Colorado River issues, and I really think you're going to enjoy this session of the Water Values Podcast. Now, as you know, before we get into the podcast, I do need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Additionally, Nothing in this podcast should be considered solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that thinks water issues are fascinating and that public education about water issues is needed and that includes educating myself about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, hello, John. Thanks very much for joining us on the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time and uh, you making the opportunity to to appear here. So thanks very much. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you today. Great. Well, John, could you talk to us about your background a little bit? Well, sure. Um, I'm originally from Colorado, uh, went to University of Northern Colorado uh, for my undergraduate, uh, and then University of Colorado at Boulder for law school. Uh, that's where uh, I was hired out of law school by the Southern Nevada Water Authority, um, was in-house counsel here for about 10 years, uh, and then about four or five years ago, they, they asked me to move over onto the uh, executive management team 
Um, and then just uh, earlier this year, uh, the, the board appointed me as the general manager of the Water Authority following uh, Pat, Pat Walroy's retirement. Oh, well, congratulations on that. That's, that's great news. And could you please describe the, uh, the Southern Nevada Water Authority and, and what its mission is? That, I mean, that sounds like a, uh, it's quite an agency you've got there. Could you talk a little about uh, the population growth that Southern Nevada has experienced and its impact on water supplies and infrastructure? Well, like most of the, the desert southwest, our, our population growth uh, from, um, you know, the early 1970s uh, through, you know, 2006, 2007, before the onset of the recession, uh, was almost geometric. I mean, our population doubled and then doubled again within the space of about 20 years. So we went from a population of about 50,000 in 1950 to a population of uh, 2 million people at the last census. So uh, really a pr pretty explosive uh, population growth. And that's obviously uh, been a challenge, both from a facilities and a resources perspective to keep up with. Um, fortunately, our, our community has really embraced uh, a conservation ethic. So even with that kind of uh, explosive population growth, our consumptive use of water has actually gone down uh, by about 33% over the last eight years as that conservation ethic has taken hold here. I can see pretty easily how the population living in Las Vegas and Southern Nevada could embrace the conservation ethic. But with Las Vegas being such a tourist destination, how, how do you, you know, put that conservation ethic and, and, and relay that to all the visitors who may not necessarily care? <laughs> well, um, I know all the hotel rooms uh, here on the Strip and in, and in downtown Las Vegas uh, all have uh, signage in, in the hotel rooms. Uh, encouraging people to you know, reuse towels, reminding them that we're in the Mojave Desert. Um, but to some degree, to a very large degree, actually, uh, the, the tourism doesn't really affect our consumptive use of water. And that's because, because of our geographic proximity to Lake Mead, we essentially have 100% reuse of any water that's used indoors. So all of that 
water that's you know the tourists use for showers, all of the water you know uh, used indoors at the casinos. If it hits a drain, we treat it. We put it back in Lake Mead, and we can take another gallon out. So the Las Vegas Strip uh, only consumes about three percent of the total water that we deplete off of the Las Vegas uh, off of the Colorado River, and in return, it generates about seventy percent of uh, our our economy. So that's a pretty good trade, I think, for any uh, community. Yeah. Um... Okay, we'll get into some Colorado River. It's it's great that you brought that up. I I, I do want to get into that, uh, but as of uh, now, I think one one of the things I'd like to talk about is um, the infrastructure that you've had to build and how that's being uh, paid for. I I attended a uh, presentation you gave recently, and I thought it was remarkable the the change you've had to go through in terms of how you. Uh, you know, paid for your, your CapEx and your debt service. Uh, so if you could, could you please talk about like the 1990s model for paying for all the growth and contrast that with how it's evolved to uh, the present day? Sure. Um, and to, to understand the, the funding models, I think the first thing people need to understand is, you know, what we've built uh, because uh, we are very capital-intensive Agency, you know, one of our primary jobs is to build the regional facilities uh, that that our community needs. So, from 1995, approximately, through the present day, uh, we've borrowed about three billion dollars in bonds. We've sold about three billion dollars worth of bonds uh, in order to build these major regional facilities that really make Las Vegas as as it currently exists. Uh, possible because that that plumbing to move the water across the valley simply wasn't in place 20 years ago. Um, so you get to how you paid for it. We we had a citizens committee that came together in 1994, 1995, really a cross section of the community that made recommendations on the need to build these facilities, but also the uh, the funding formula for for how to go about doing that and what that citizens committee recommended and what ultimately uh, our board agreed to and pursued was that through regional connection charges or tap fees as, as many jurisdictions refer to them uh, we were supposed to generate 57 percent of the revenue needed to pay off the, the debt for these facilities through connection charges and that worked very well for the first 10 years of the program. Between 1996 and 2006, the, uh, the, the revenue from that model was tracking very closely with what uh, the model had projected. And we had about $188 million in revenue at the peak uh, of 2006. With the onset of the recession, I think it's pretty well known. Las Vegas, you know, was was about as hard hit as any area of the country. Uh, when the housing bubble burst, those connection charges plummeted. So we went from a high of 188 million in 2006 to a low of only three million in 2009. So that funding formula um, really went askew. And so what our community needed to do was again come together we we uh, convened another citizens committee uh, of citizens I, I believe ultimately 29 citizens participated and these are people from all walks of life 
uh, here in Las Vegas and needed to come up with a replacement revenue stream. And ultimately what they came up with was dividing the needed revenue 50% on a fixed basis, so an infrastructure charge that is applied to each bill in the valley, you know, and it goes up, you know, according to meter size, um, together with an increase in the commodity charge, so a volumetric charge. So they continue to want to send a conservation message by having a volumetric charge, but they also recognize that because of the fixed nature of the debt, that a big part of the revenue also needed to be fixed. Uh, and we ultimately got a unanimous recommendation out of that citizens committee. Uh, our board and all of our member agencies' boards uh, unanimously passed that at the end of last year. So we now have a, a, a different uh, revenue stream for about the same amount of money uh, that we lost when the connection charges went south. Well, that's that's amazing that your connection charges dropped that significantly. And how how were you able to make up with make up for the the dip, uh, kind of when it was happening because. You know, were, did did you rely on reserves? Was there a, an interim yeah, rate increase? Or? Mostly, I mean, fortunately, we went into the recession with very healthy reserves. We we had been uh, we had been banking those connection charge revenues because these are, you're dealing with uh, you know thirty and sometimes even forty year bonds. So you you know you need to to sock that money away when it's coming in. So we went into the recession. Uh, with about $750 million in reserves. So even when the bottom fell out and no more revenue was coming in, we were able to uh, make our debt payments out of those reserves for a number of years, really through the, the worst of the recession when we didn't want to go back to the community and, and ask for additional revenue. Um, but then once we got to 2012, 2013, uh, we knew that wasn't uh, sustainable way to be paying what's essentially the community's mortgage payment on on its water supply infrastructure. So that's when we ultimately went back to the community and, and figured out a different funding source. Yeah. Well, kudos to you on getting that, that push through uh, unanimously. That's that's impressive in, in this day and age when everyone's got something to fight. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's also talk about the conservation ethic that you um, – have instilled in your your customer base and could you talk a little about what are the programs that that you offer and uh you know what kind of you've you mentioned that the consumption was down about 33 percent but so what are the programs that that enticed people to to conserve well, far and away, our most uh, successful uh, conservation program uh, is, is called the Water Smart Landscape Program. And what that is is we put money every year in our budget, and people can come apply to us for a turf rebate. So if you take out turf in your front or backyard and replace it with desert-friendly landscaping, we will pay you a uh, dollar fifty a square foot uh, to to do that. 
Um, so to date, um, we have paid uh, the people in our community, and that goes anywhere from you know, large turf users like schools and golf courses and, and parks, all the way down to single-family homes that have you know 80 square foot you know pat, patch of lawn. Anybody can apply for it, uh, and we've spent uh, about 205 million dollars to date paying people to take out their grass and replace it with desert-friendly landscaping. And that program uh, alone has probably generated, you know, 20 to 25 percent of the overall overall uh, uh, part of the 33 percent reduction. Um, but we do other stuff too. We, we've, in, uh, we've imposed um, day of week uh, watering restrictions. We've imposed seasonal watering restrictions, uh, time of day watering restrictions. Uh, under now all the municipal codes, there's no grass allowed in the front yards anymore, and only half of your backyard, the landscapable area in your backyard, can uh, be put in uh, be put into turf. Um, we we have indoor programs too, just because it doesn't affect our bottom line. In terms of a water resource, there's still really good reasons to do it, such as the savings in electrical power and chemical costs of treating that water and, and pumping it uphill. So we do, you know, in, in conformance with the Uniform Plumbing Code, we give rebates on low-flow uh, shower fixtures. We give rebates on water-efficient uh, washing machines and uh, and dishwashers. Um, we we do just about everything. I've seen a lot of presentations from a lot of communities. Um, on, on their conservation programs, and I don't think I've ever seen any particular component where I was like, wow, we, we should do that too, because I think we sample and, and do just about everything everybody else does, except we do more of it. Okay. Uh, how much more is there to ring out? I mean, is there a lot of, uh, are, are people still, do they have substantial irriga outdoor irrigation uh, that can be removed and be eligible for these credits to help you save more? Or what's... What's the future yeah, look like? I, I, I definitely don't, I don't think we've reached the point of diminishing returns yet. Um, you know, we're in our budget cycle right now, and preliminarily, I think we're we're looking at putting ten million dollars in in next year's budget uh, for for more turf removal. Certainly, some of the older parts of town when they were still building, you know, sort of half acre lots. Uh, but there's there's still you know some grass out there that, that we think we can get, and just in terms of meeting our overall goal, um, you know our board has said we should get down to 199 gallons per capita per day, and that's that's a diversion number, not a consumptive number. Um, and we've come from about 360 down to 220, so we're we're close to that goal. But even if we achieve it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if our board, board ultimately elects to say, okay, we've gotten to 199. How much further can we go? Yeah. Well, great. Um, let's let's turn to the Colorado River. You mentioned that's where Las Vegas and Southern Nevada primarily draws its water supply from. I don't think a lot of the listeners really under, may not understand what the regime of governance for the Colorado River is. So could you could you just provide a framework for how the Colorado River is governed and, and how people can or how entities can take water from it? Well, it, it's pretty complicated. It's a, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a series of 
you know, compacts, statutes, uh, treaties, um, you know, state laws. You know, it, it comes at it from a lot of different angles. But I think the the essentials are there are seven states that share the Colorado River. In the upper basin, you have Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico. And in the lower basin, you have Arizona, Nevada, and California. Plus, the country of Mexico has a treaty entitlement uh, to, to water from the river that's used in the states of Baja and Sonora. So the, the foundational document for the governance of the Colorado River is the 1922 compact among the, the seven domestic states. And that's a really important document because because the compact was passed by seven state legislatures, signed by seven governors, ratified by Congress, and signed by the president, um, that puts the states in an ownership position. The seven states really own all the water out of the Colorado River, not the federal government. Um, but the federal government then came along later and built Hoover Dam, built Glen Canyon Dam, and the Bureau of Reclamation really is the operator of the river. So you have this really interesting nexus between you know, state ownership of the water, but federal ownership and control of all of the all the dams and really the big infrastructure on the river. If you take that overlay further and talk about uh, the federal trust obligation to the Indian tribes, uh, federal uh, ownership and operation of, I think, six national parks <laughs> that touch the river, uh, things like the Endangered Species Act that are administered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you you really have an area that you know brings together the compact clause, the treaty clause, and the supremacy clause of of the Constitution, and, and makes for a, a unique, in my experience, governance structure where you really have to get seven states and the federal government on the same page to accomplish just about anything on the river. Okay, now, in terms of um, how the the federal government operates the infrastructure along the river course. I know that the Glen Canyon Dam divides the upper basin and the lower basin. And, you know, is there a certain amount of water that the lower basin is, is guaranteed to receive under the compact or, and, and, and how does, how does that work? Yeah. Well, what the compact says is the upper basin states will not deplete the flows of the river in a way that the lower basin uh, gets less than 75 million acre-feet every 10 years. So the compact itself contemplates the upper basin has to deliver 75 million every 10 years. But that's been with the signing of the treaty with Mexico in 1944 and the passage of some statutes, what, how that's made its way into the operational criteria that the Bureau of Reclamation uses is the standard release from uh, Lake Powell to Lake Mead is 8.23 million acre feet every year. So that, you know, 7.5 to, to get to the, the 75 million plus half of the, the treaty obligation to, to Mexico. Um, now there are years when you balance uh, or equalize the the, vault, the storage of Palomita, and you might release more than that. And there are years like this year when Powell is low enough that you actually reduce we release less than that. But rule of thumb, the upper basin generally has an obligation to release 8.23 million acre feet a year. 
Okay. And I know we're going into this period of drought or we've been in this period of drought. Is there any danger that the upper basin may not be able to deliver that much water? And, and what happens then? Well, that's really the role of Lake Powell. Um, Lake Powell is is the upper basin's um, bank account, if you will. And, uh, you know, obviously everyone that works on the river hopes we don't get to to that point. But if if Lake Powell, you know, continues to to drop precipitously, I think that's when ultimately the seven states are going to have to come back to the table uh, and see what additional measures, in addition to a lot of shortage sharing agreements we've already put in place in 2007, what additional steps we may need to take to protect critical elevations in Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Okay. And what? And just so to give us a, a framework, what is the existing status of Lake Mead in terms of its elevation in a historical context? Yeah. Um, Lake Mead right now is at elevation uh, 1108. It's at approximately 47% uh, capacity. Uh, Up until the year 2000, Lake Mead was almost always full. I mean, almost 100% full all the time. It fluctuated a little bit for for operational purposes. Um, But the, the first 13 years of the 21st century have seen uh, both Lake Mead and Lake Powell drop by over 50%, um, so that each reservoir now is less than half full. Now, you mentioned earlier some shortage sharing agreements that were put in place back in 2007. I think those were part of some broader interim guidelines uh, that you were heavily involved with. Could you give us a thumbnail as to what those interim guidelines do and how they operate? Well, the interim guidelines uh, really do three primary things, and I'll talk about each of them. Um, They uh, coordinate Mead-Powell operations uh, really for the first time ever. Before the the guidelines, it was possible for one reservoir to be almost empty while the other one was was almost full. Uh, And through the guidelines, we put in place these equalization uh, measures so that basically the the reservoirs track much more closely with each other, and which is why you see both of them in the low in the mid 40 percentile uh, right now. Uh, the second thing the 07 guidelines did is establish triggers in Lake Mead. So if you hit specific elevations in Lake Mead, uh, entitlements, legal entitlements to the lower basin states, lower basin contractors would be uh, Reduced, so that's the shortage sharing mechanisms uh, that you referred to. Uh, but the the last thing we did was really a more proactive step, and we came up with uh, what's called intentionally created surplus, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, we came up with ways for people to make investments and bank water in Lake Mead. Um, there's four or five different kinds uh, of ICF. But the basic theory is if you make investments either to use less water or to bring more water uh, to Lake Mead, that uh, you can, A, use Mead as your bank account, and B, um, have the benefit of that investment in, you know, stored, banked wet water for, for your future use. So even as we were coming up with 
ways to share the pain through the shortage sharing mechanisms, we were also coming up with very innovative ways to uh, stretch our supplies and bring new supplies uh, to the table. How have, how have they worked in terms of, I, I think California has banked some and they're kind of calling on those deposits now. Is that is that correct? Uh, that, that's correct. Um, you know, uh, first sort of how it's worked like up until this year, um, through investment of my agency, the Southern Nevada Water Authority, uh, the Central Arizona Project, and the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, uh, together with the country of Mexico, uh, they got basically the same banking opportunity through the execution of minutes 318 and 319 in 2011 and 2012, respectively. So between the efforts of uh, the, the three domestic agencies in the country of Mexico, we've actually banked enough water in Lake Mead that Lake Mead is now 10 feet higher than it would be without those efforts. So very successful uh, in, in terms of implementing those programs. Uh, you mentioned California pulling some of their water out this year, and that's true given uh, Los Angeles, you know, the, the area uh, that's served by Metropolitan. They have two primary sources of supply. They, they get water off the Colorado River, and they also get water from the State Water Project, which is really pulling water from the, the Sacramento uh, Bay Delta area in Northern California. Because of the extreme drought in Northern California this year, uh, the, the state cut Metropolitan's uh, deliveries from the State Water Project to zero. They got none of their legal entitlement to that supply. So they are pulling some of their water uh, out of their bank account on the Colorado this year, um, which you know we fully support. We fully understand the, their need to do that. Um, we could be in that position some someday where we need to pull water out of our bank account. Um, so we, we think you know there will still be more water in need. Um, than there would be, but for their efforts. So uh, we we support you know their ability to do that in their time of need. That's interesting to look at it through that perspective. In terms of Lake, you said Lake Mead would be ten feet lower were it not for this banking mechanism. Um, how how much water does ten feet in Lake Mead constitute? About a million acre feet. Um, general rule of thumb, and it, it varies. And when the lake's really really full, obviously each foot is more because Lake Mead's a V, so you know it's it's like a you know a, a beer pint. You know the the top inch holds more water than the bottom inch, right? Right. Um, so, um, but most of the reservoir you're talking about a hundred thousand acre feet per foot. So ten feet's about a million acre feet in storage. Okay. Well, let's talk about climate change and its impact on the Colorado River. Do you have any sense of what what the scientists are saying about climate change and how it's going to impact the Colorado River? Well, certainly the uh, the seven states and the Bureau of Reclamation uh, released a basin study at the end of 2012 that included uh, climate change scenarios um, in there, and that you know I think the climate change scenarios basically had you going from the historical average, the, the measured average over the last 106 years is about uh, 15 million acre feet, and the climate change scenarios are saying that could go down to about 13 million acre feet. So a, a pretty substantial reduction, more than 10%. Uh, 
of reduction. Um, and I personally think that we probably need to be prepared for you know even worst case scenarios than that. I mean, some of the the drought years we've seen on the Colorado River uh, just in the last 13 years. 2002 was the driest year ever, with only 25% of, of normal runoff, and 2012 and 2013 were the driest back-to-back -back years uh, on record, both in the low 40th percentile. So we need to be prepared for there to be less water on the river, um, because the scary part for water managers on the river is looking backwards can be just as scary as looking forwards, because we know from the paleohydrology reconstructed from tree ring records that um, the 20th century was one of the two wettest centuries on the Colorado in the last 1,200 years. So you're not likely to see another century like that. Uh, we know that droughts of the same magnitude that we're experiencing now have gone on on the Colorado for 30, 40, even 50 years. So we need to be prepared for drought separate and apart from anthropogenic effects compounding that through through climate change. If we get one of those dry periods compounded by climate change, you know, then you're in a situation where you could really have to scramble and, uh, you know, really take a hard look at your water uses throughout the basin. Now, the the future of the Colorado River and the, the entities that draw water from it, I mean, are you looking out and if in these in these scary scenarios, so to speak, are you seeing more cooperation or, or is it going to turn into litigation? Do you have any feel for that? I certainly uh, believe a hundred percent in the, the cooperation collaboration model. Um, and I'll tell you why. In, I think, you, you know, I'm, I'm a recovering attorney myself. So <laughs> I'm, uh, you, you know, I, I try not to disparage the profession, but you know, we've seen the litigation model, on the Colorado River. Arizona v. California started in 1936, and the most recent Supreme Court decree was issued in 2006. Literally four generations of water attorneys worked on that case, and they didn't add a single gallon of water to the river. All they did was take control away from professional water managers and put it into the hands of the guys and gals in black robes. And I don't think that's uh, a prudent course for solving extremely complicated problems. It's going to take all seven states, the federal government coming to the table uh, and having an adult conversation about uh, contingency plans uh, in the event uh, we, we continue to see a diminution in the water supply in this basin. Well, that's, that's great. It's good to hear that that's your mindset. Um, I have one more substantive question uh, as we've gone uh, about 30, a little over 30 minutes here, and so you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, but my last substantive question has to do with the dropping levels of Lake Mead and the intakes. I know that uh, you've, you've got an infrastructure project you know, that's commonly known as the third straw. Could you tell us just a little bit about that project and uh, its, its impact on Southern Nevada? Sure. Well, um, the first straw was built by the federal government in the late 60s, early 70s, and it's at elevation 1050. Uh, the second straw, the Water Authority built ourselves, and it came online in the year 2000. Um, but for us, the, the worry is that Lake Mead elevations could actually get low enough that you wouldn't be able to pull water through either of those 
intakes. So the, the third straw uh, is being built. Literally, we're, we're tunneling uh, a three-and-a-half-mile tunnel underneath Lake Mead uh, with the intake structure itself, which has already been installed, uh, located in the historic river channel where the Colorado River was before Hoover Dam was constructed. So we're installing this intake literally at the, the bottom of the bathtub, if you will, uh, and that will do a couple things for us. It'll allow us, obviously, to access water at that elevation, but it will also uh, protect our water quality because the warmer the water gets, uh, if that warm water gets close to your intakes, you have tremendous uh, water quality challenges. So uh, that price tag on that project is about $817 million. It's all local funding. There's no federal or state money in the project, and we view it as a, an adaptation project. It's a project we need uh, in the face of the drought, in face of, of climate change, and while we're the first community to be facing these kind of uh, capital expenditures uh, to, to adapt to the new climate, I, I don't think we're going to be the last. Well, John, thank you very much for your time. You've you've been terrific, and I just uh, am so pleased that that you were able to to find time to come on the Water Values podcast. So, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That was my interview with John Ensminger, and what a great guy! He provided us with a lot of information on water conservation and water rate design in Las Vegas, on Colorado River governance, and on the future of the Colorado River. Here are a few of my key takeaways from the interview. First, the water conservation ethic that has been instilled in Southern Nevada is incredible. To achieve a 33% reduction in water use despite the population continuing to skyrocket is absolutely amazing. And the conservation programs they have, I think, will be models for the rest of the country once water scarcity reaches tipping points in those areas. Second, the Colorado River governance structure and the 2007 interim guidelines that John addressed were very interesting. The ability to bank water and to coordinate reservoir levels between Lake Mead and Lake Powell provides significant benefits to the states that have an interest in the Colorado River. And I think Colorado's, or excuse me, California's withdrawals this year from Lake Mead are a great example of that, of that banking mechanism in action. Finally, I found it encouraging to hear John's outlook for cooperation and collaboration on water use on the Colorado River. His observation from the California versus Arizona case that four generations of water lawyers did not add a single drop of water to the basin hopefully is prescient and marks an admonition to water users on the Colorado River that cooperation and collaboration will yield the best results for water use on the Colorado River. Well, what what interested you about that interview? Please let me know by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod five. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash pod five. I also appreciate any of your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. And you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. That's at DTM1993. Contact me with suggestions for potential interviewees, water issues you'd like to hear more about, or even just to let me know what you liked and what you didn't like about the podcast. I'm always trying to improve, and I want to deliver to you the information about water that you want to hear. I appreciate your support by spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast and providing an honest review on iTunes and Stitcher. I promise you this, I will never turn down a five-star review. In closing... 
As always, thank you for listening to the Water Values Podcast, and please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So join me in going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.